Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. On a Sunday afternoon in the fall, my colleague Harry Bastramajian and I gathered with a group at the gates of Boston's Chinatown to learn about the little-known history of that neighborhood, which was once called Little Syria and occupied by immigrants from the former Ottoman Empire who came to Boston in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. On the tour, led by Lydia Harrington, postdoctoral research fellow at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at MIT, and Chloe Bordewick, public history postdoctoral associate at the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, we visited sites that were important to the Little Syria community and heard personal stories from some of its descendants who still live in the Boston area today. So to get us started, why don't you tell us about your background and how you came to do this public history project on Boston's Little Syria? Uh, Okay, so I uh, recently finished my PhD at BU at Boston University in Islamic Art and Architecture, uh, researching something totally, like mostly unrelated to this topic, um, late Ottoman architecture. So actually the same time period as a lot of the um, Little Syria history. But um, Chloe and I actually met while we were doing research for our dissertations in Istanbul. And we somehow when we came back from research, we were had heard there was this little Syria neighborhood in Boston and we were trying to find a book or some comprehensive narrative source about it. And we could just find, you know, blogs on short blog posts about the religious aspect of the neighborhood or food, like food blogs are very interested in the neighborhood. But there was, like, very little secondary um, sources. So we just decided, like, hey, we'll do some research on it. And it turned into a walking tour. That was the first iteration. And we actually had uh, started the research in February 2020. So, like, we didn't get much done before the pandemic started. (laughs) But we were doing a little more research until 2022. And we had been, you know, busy trying to finish our dissertations. And then that over that like year and a half or two year span and then we started giving the um walking tours in uh like may 2020 22 to 2022 and uh that morphed into writing an article about it and having this uh curating this exhibition so yeah it's kind of like snowballed in a good way into to more projects so i'll hand it over to you to talk more about it Yeah, I think for me, um, I also, my research focused primarily on modern Egypt and not on local history here in Boston, but having lived here now for so many years, you know, I think I felt, I felt a desire to know more about how the places, now I mostly study Egypt, but also the broader Ottoman Empire were connected um, with the place that I had been living. And I think often, you know, the universities can, a university campus can be kind of a thing unto itself. And um, it's, it's wonderful to to be able to connect with the communities that are outside the the university walls from our own interest. You know, we started walking in the neighborhood in the South End and in Chinatown, and the only really remaining um, shop that still uh, still exists on Shawmut Avenue was actually open, and we were able to talk with the proprietors there. And, um, and 
that that sort of sparked our desire to get to know some more of the people who really belong mm-hmm. to this community in the past and and their descendants in the present. Um, and so that's as as Lydia said, how the project began to evolve. And you know, I think we've seen, um, but by by exploring the history of Little Syria through different mediums, through the through the walking tour, through um, through written articles, and then through an exhibition, and soon public event and a digital humanities project, you know how you can reach different audiences, um, and also. We, you know, take in more information about the neighborhood by connecting with different people. Okay, I think we're we're going. Um, so we would like to start out first, actually, by asking you all uh, what brought you to the tour today. What what kind of interest uh, you have uh, in in Little Syria, and uh, and then we'll start the, uh, the the tour itself. Well, this is where my family lived in the first part of the twentieth uh, century. Same with, same, with, same with us. Our parents met, uh, they fell in love, they got married, um, and you know, so much of their family history is tied to this part of Boston. The little Syria neighborhood and um, that we focus on here, um, we're, basically stretches from, well, it, 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 it's located in what's now Chinatown and part of the South End. So um, when we do walking tours, we start at the um, Chinatown Gate, which that's a, that's a landmark people are familiar with. Um, and the initial, uh, the, the initial settlement of the area by Syrians, which was in the 18, late 1880s, um, took place on both sides of the Chinatown Gate. If you're, st- if you're standing in front of the gate, um, on one side is what's now to your right, Ping On Alley, um, that was called Oliver Place. Um, and then on the left-hand side, you turn towards Tyler Hudson Street and Tyler Street. And those um, really became the center of the neighborhood um, you know, by the turn of the 20th century. So those, those two streets are really cr- critical um, in terms of understanding the geography of the neighborhood. And then um, over time, as more and more people came from Ottoman Syria to Boston, they um, they you know moved beyond those streets um, uh, and beyond that area that's now Chinatown to um, into what's the South End. So from the Chinatown South Cove, that's also um, mm-hmm. what that area is called. Um, across what's now the um, part of the, the Central Artery, the um, the highway, um, over to Shamit Avenue um, and uh, and beyond the, the neighboring streets over there. Mm-hmm. So the the time period that we're talking about here, just to answer the second part of your question, we focus on the 1880s through the 1950s, but the the end is is less distinct than the beginning. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that it was really the 1880s when people started coming, but um, you know there are still some people living in the neighborhood today. So mm-hmm. the end is a little bit like um, more uh, protracted. That's important to know. I mean, that 1880s is about the time when Boston's really, as a city, is booming. I mean, yeah, totally. Dorchester becomes mm-hmm. a larger part of the city, mm-hmm. gets incorporated. And and the demographics were changing in many ways, yeah. not only in terms of the Syrians. I mean, Lydia can talk more about mm-hmm. this, um, too. But, you know, um, this was a na- the neighborhood that is now Chinatown in the South Cove, um, I mean, had been... In, you know, well, actually, on the south end too. You know, had been inhabited by all kinds of different immigrant groups, also, and 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 Bostonians. You know, of 
who had been there <laughs> for generations mm-hmm. as well. Uh, many of the buildings on, say, Hudson and Tyler were built in the 1840s, um, and many are still there now in, that, in those particular streets. Um, and uh, But then there was some demographic change as more immigrants from more different places became, came came. Um, of course, there was a shift, too, with Chinese coming um, mm-hmm. increasingly as time went on um, and uh, and Syrians, again, moving somewhat southward towards the south end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to talk about the demographics, demographics changing, um, there were if you look at property maps, which I've been doing a lot of um, specifically with this great tool called Atlas Scope through the Leventhal Map Center at the Boston Public Library, you can compare like the current uh, city map to any maps between, I think, the early 19th century to about 1938. That must Mm -hmm. be the latest one. So I'm looking at the 1880s through the last map on there, and you have pretty much just Irish, some Italian, some English names uh, on those properties in what's now Chinatown. Um, And then once you get to the... 1890s, there's more Arab names like Ab- Abdullah or Shipley. Um, and I mean, there, there's never a, like totally dom- like a domination by the Syrians and Lebanese. Um, it's always a mix. So you see more Arab names and then a little bit after that, Chinese names. Mm-hmm. Also uh, consistently Jewish names like through through from from like earlier from the 1880s. Um, so it's pretty, like, diverse, although there was, you know, it was distinctly known as a Syrian neighborhood, but, you know, always, there was always a mix. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what was going on in the Ottoman Empire at that time and what caused um, people to come from greater Syria to Boston? So there were several um, different factors. I mean, one is economic. There was the decline of the silk industry, um, which was more in Lebanon, I think. Would you Yeah, I mean, agree? I think what, what actually one thing that we should maybe say, like where they came from specifically, because oh, yeah, that is relevant from. to yeah, why, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. is this like most came from the corridor between Zahle mm-hmm. and what's now Lebanon and Damascus. So you have, there are people with, from the Syrian side of the border, the border that now exists, mm-hmm. and the Lebanese, Lebanon side of the border. But, you know, um, Jebel Lebanon, like this, you know, mountainous part of Lebanon, plus sort of the Damascus city and the city and suburbs of Damascus. But then you do find people from other places, too. There are other pockets, other certain villages that also um, ended mm-hmm. up sending mm-hmm. a number of people to Boston. You know, people follow their relatives like mm-hmm. in any like any immigrant mm-hmm. group. So and then we've also found people even who came from what's now southern, Tur- like very, the very southernmost part of Turkey. Um, they're mm-hmm. one of the oral histories, for example, that listened to, um, you know, was was um, a, a family that, uh, you know, an, um, a Syrian family from southern Turkey, what's now Turkey, uh, that migrated because of the massacres in the 1890s of Christians, migrated to Damascus and then to Boston. And so there are these, sto- the, the, the fabric is not kind of all uniform, but I think the most, the, the, the largest number of people came from that corridor between Zahle and Damascus, which is not, not enormous, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so that's why, as Lydia said, the silk, the decline of the silk industry was really significant in that area and had rep- mm-hmm. economic repercussions for a much wider swath of the region as well. Mm-hmm. 
And, and just to add to the, you know, diversity of people coming from that region here, there were also Armenians who had um, migrated to like Aleppo and Damascus and Beirut um, from the 1890s uh, during Hamenian massacres and Anatolia and then through the um, Armenian genocide and aftermath. So, I mean, I interviewed one woman who was of an Armenian family who had come from Aleppo and they spoke both Armenian and Turkish at home here, not Arabic. So it was, um, yeah, so it's a diverse neighborhood and it's not just what we think of as Syrian today in that like nation state sense. Mm -hmm. But to go back to, um, yeah, why they came, I mean, there was also uh, in the earlier period a religious persecution, like there had been a civil war in Syria in 1860 that extended from would you, extended from Damascus to Mount Lebanon. Um, and then, you know, once it hits World War One, you have um, the Ottoman conscription into the army that a lot of Syrian men were trying to flee, um, as well as just like a large famine on Mount Lebanon. So, I mean, basically reflecting, you know, the effects of World War One in many different places. So people were, were fleeing, you know, in waves from different places, including uh, from Syria to to places like the U.S. Um, I would say, you know, one specific reason some of them wanted to come to the U.S. Uh, was because of American presence in Lebanon specifically, um, like Protestant missionaries. And these were Christians. So we, I mean, I think that's yeah. important to emphasize, like the Christians who already had connections through the Protestant missionaries, like some of them had been attending school, Protestant missionary schools. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of how they connected, you know, with, I mean, if they didn't already have family members here, that comes up sometimes. Not, It's not universal at all, yeah. but you do find mention of, you know, oh, well, I attended this missionary school in Syria or in, or, you know, Lebanon. Yeah, so it kind of mm -hmm. makes that connection that people follow. And so once a few people come to Boston, more follow. So that's like a pretty standard Im immigration path for, for U.S. history. Um, otherwise, I mean, most people who... Almost everyone who was settled in what's known as Little Syria were Christian um, and either Orthodox or Catholic. We haven't actually found anyone Protestant yet, even mm -hmm. though like some of them... Maronite, Melkite, and Orthodox, yeah. pretty much. Like, yeah. So some people came there. Some went to um, the Merrimack Valley. So that's between northeastern Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. Some people went to northern Rhode Island. Um, Lawrence, the... Lawrence, yeah, to work in. So a lot of uh, immigrants were working in mills in Lawrence. Um, Wasn't there also a pretty vibrant textile industry in the northeast of Massachusetts? Too? Yeah. So like, so, was that part of the draw? Was okay. I yeah, I've worked in this working. this sector of the economy. I understand how it works, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just lots of. I mean, it was like I think a lot of people were learning how to run a textile machine, repetitive movements. So. Mm -hmm. Inside and outside of Boston. I mean, in yeah. the garment mm -hmm. district in Little Syria, but also in the mills, like in Lawrence. And, yeah. And, and they didn't need to know English or much English to work there. So you see, like, in, the, in Lawrence, they had a very large, um, like, known as the Bread and Roses strike. And there were Armenians, Syrians, Irish, Jewish, like many different ethnicities uh, who were demanding more rights um, and, you know, talking about it in their own languages, having people translate. So um, 
So yeah, very much a vibrant part of the labor history of Massachusetts too. Cool. I know. Um, related to where uh, many of these immigrants were from, that sort of that corridor between Beirut and Damascus, yeah. that the Zahle Road yeah. through the Shuf. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that also sort of the location of a lot of monasteries? So mm, I'm wondering yeah. if there was any yeah. connection between perhaps the church, and the church in Lebanon and its relationship with the Catholic Church and also, you know, New England and and Boston, Massachusetts is a pretty, pretty vibrant Catholic place. Like, I wonder, did did that have anything to do with the choice, the decision to come to Boston, right, as opposed to maybe some other area? It's a really good question. There definitely were ties between, you know, um, churches in in Syria, Lebanon, in Syria and um, mm-hmm. You know the new churches that were being founded mm-hmm. here, and that, and still to this day, yeah. I mean, the, the the churches that were founded here, many, several of which still exist, and you know, in Boston, in the larger Boston area, you know, they're still um, connected with specific churches in Syria and Lebanon mm-hmm. today, and are sending um, aid and and whatnot to to churches that they're specifically connected to. So mm-hmm. you know, there were priests coming over as well, and they helped to establish the first churches in Boston and and in New York and you know elsewhere in mm-hmm. the in in the Americas. So I don't know that it that they thought, oh, Boston, place of churches, but I think as far as maintaining relationships and that these you know, there was a kind of um there were there not only money, but also um yeah, well money was actually really important. They were sending money back from here. But also um priests. I mean there was an exchange of priests. Well yeah that that relationship is is pretty big. I mean why why would you go, you know, move around the world um yeah. and you know, if there there aren't others who share the same faith as you, yeah. you know, so it it, it kind of makes sense that. Um... Well, looking at that from from a different angle, I mean, it's no accident that that most of the early um, immigrants from Syria were Christian and not yeah. Muslim. There's been fascinating scholarship on, um, you know, how Syrians, for example. Uh, were cast as white and therefore assimilable in a way that, say, Muslim immigrants were not seen at this particular moment. It's a complicated story, but eventually, sort of in the post-World War I period, not before that really, um, coming to be seen as white immigrants, quote-unquote, when we think of Syrians today, that's not necessarily who we're thinking of. And Mm -hmm. um, that that wasn't really resolved until the, um, well, really until the abolition of the quota, immigration quotas in the 1960s, but there were a number of cases litigated in the 1940s and so forth that tried to kind of resolve this uh, mm-hmm. changing demographic of immigrants from from this place, which who did were not reflect which was not reflective of what the earliest um, waves uh, demographics were. The fact that they were Christian was really significant in multiple different ways, both in the eyes of non-Syrian Americans um, and the U.S. government, actually, specifically, mm-hmm. and p- presumably also in terms of these relationships that were forged between mm-hmm. the churches here and the communities back home. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I ha- so- oh, could I add something? Just, I think it's like worth also talking about immigration paths that don't go directly to Boston first yeah. of people who ended up here. Um, for example, I some of the people we found, we found just like in our research, we found just through looking at those uh, square signs you see in intersections all over Cambridge, like every 
the whole there's like Boston. a sign dedicated to <laughs> somebody everywhere. Every, yeah. everywhere. Every intersection. And once I saw one in the past few months near Harvard that was the last time let's like Thabit or Sabit. And I was like, okay, this seems like an Arabic name. And maybe we'll talk more about this, but how they transliterated names into English was always not very straightforward, like that it's an Arab name or they changed the spelling to make it easier for English speakers to pronounce. So I looked up the family's history and this guy's like grandfather, great grandfather had gone from Damascus to uh, New York, decided it was too cold and then went to Havana. Hmm. And then eventually the family ended up in Boston. (laughs) So yeah, I would think maybe New York was too cold in comparison to Damascus. (laughs) And uh, I mean, another family we've been talking to their, um, one branch of the family came to Boston, then they were like, we're going to make try to make it work in Utah. And they, they decided, okay, Utah's not yeah. working for us. They come back. So I think there's, you know, pe- some people just end up in Boston incidentally, or they, and that family also had a branch in Montreal, and they would go back and forth. So um, sometimes it's not always so clear what's drawing them to Boston, or it's, you know, they try one place and don't like it and decide I'm going to try another place that I've heard of. So there was mobility. Yeah. I mean, I a lot think of mobility. Yeah. Mobility also, I mean, not just within the United States, but also North America more broadly in Latin America. And so there are definitely is plenty of documentation of um, ties between community organizations, at least here and organization, community organizations that were founded by Syrians in um, South America um, mm-hmm. as well. These families, especially those that were involved in commerce, you know, mm-hmm. often did ha- establish ties through their commercial um, you know, ventures with other with other cities and, and other Syrian communities that were being established in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering, going back to uh, most of the population being Christians, is there evidence that Muslims were actually filtered out who were trying to come here, or was it more of um, Christians having more ties? And So there actually was a Muslim population in uh, Quincy, mm-hmm. then known, I'm not sure if it's known as Quincy Point still today, but we know Quincy, um, and they came to work at the docks and shipbuilding. So I think... And the Turks in Peabody. Not yeah, Syrians. and Turkish men went to Peabody, which mm-hmm. is, for those of you who might not know, north of Boston, um, north of Salem. And uh, they worked in leather uh, leather works, and the street was known as Turkish Street because there were so many Turkish men. And most of them, you know, made some money and then went back to the Ottoman Empire. Um, only, I think, one stayed who has a gravestone here. So there were Muslims coming, and I think it's just a matter of, you know, you a few people go and they build a community and more people from the same background or the same villages come. So I think it could also be like village, you know, village to village um, migration um, and just, you know, going where there's a church or a mosque nearby. So I don't think... Muslims were filtered out per se, but there might have just been more Christians coming to Boston. I think like it's a little bit of both. This was not a, like a welcoming place to come to immigrate to as a Muslim. I mean, I don't mean just Boston specifically. I mean like the United <laughs> States as a whole. Yeah, yeah. As I said, 1965, there's a like, huge demographic change in mm-hmm. or in immigration and um and and partly it was just the elimination of the, the quota system that had been in place. But even before. Um, you know, there certainly that does not. That's not to say that there were none. I think that's really important to like establish that presence. And as Lydia said, there were these specific communities. They were small, but they were there. And mm-hmm. um, and like in my own research, I have come across examples of 
Muslim immigrants who attempted to settle, uh, to come to Boston um, and who were deported. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, these are an- anecdotal examples. Statistics were collected about deportations, but it's hard to really be able to map out numbers. Um, and for example, one document I read was a was an appeal, a de- deportation appeal um, of a deportation um, by the brother of a man and his friends who were in the early 20s, who were sent back to Syria um, on the basis that they were polygamists or mm-hmm. would be polygamists because, right. in fact, they had not, they were not married, <laughs> but that they had, they had been interrogated at the port of entry in Boston. Uh, actually, potentially, I think they might have been interrogated in New York, but they were en route to Boston and uh, had been asked, you know, what are your views on polygamy? And, you know, would you, ha- would you take more than one wife if you had the opportunity? And they said, well... Sure, I get, I guess, and were then that was documented, and they were deported. These kinds of documents are super interesting because the appeal then brings out a lot more complicated details. You know, they said, well, they didn't speak English, so they actually didn't know even what the conversation was. <laughs> yeah. And so I think you know there there's there are definitely examples like that, and um, we can see how um, immig- the the immigration authorities in the United States, federal authorities, worked quite hard to create racial and ethnic categories based on racial pseudoscience that did um, were intended and did not always succeed, but sometimes succeeded in excluding people who they considered to be, um, you know, the least like themselves. So, mm-hmm. and that often in- included, you know, Muslims of, from all mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, we had started talking about some of the industries that um, Syrian Americans worked in. Um, I think there was other work that was common, like peddling. Can you talk about talk a bit more about how they earned a living, both men and women? Yeah, so actually both men and women did engage in peddling. That was more men, but there were women who peddled too. And peddling is where you sell dry goods such as, you know, like appliances for cooking or bed sheets, scarves, you know, different kinds of textiles or metalware, pajamas, things like that on the street, soap, um, anything that you might want for your house. Um and it was easy for them to get right into that because you don't have to speak that much English. I can help you learn some English if you don't know it. Um, and you'd have a small wagon or a cart and push that down the street. Um, and the places they got the goods from were Syrians who already owned, um, like, an, basically Syrians who had enough money would buy uh, an apartment building and they would have a business on the first floor, such as a grocery store, and they would um, have the goods to peddle in the basement. And then they would live above the store and rent out, you know, five or so other apartments to other families, most of whom were Syrian, but not always. Sometimes it was very mixed. So the peddlers, um, uh, peddling was one way to earn a living right when you got here. Um, One notable... uh, trade that women engaged in was lace weaving and that was something that they had already learned in Syria it's a you know well-known Middle Eastern craft um, so they would you know we've seen photos of women uh, sewing or weaving lace on their front steps and that was something they could sell um, that was definitely in demand and other things that people did we talked about uh, working in textile mills so that was something um, pretty easy to just jump into right away And then there were some uh, individuals who came already trained as teachers, priests, um, kind of a little bit more white collar work. 
but um, we should emphasize that people who were migrating weren't the poorest Syrians, so not usually mm -hmm. farmers, but people who, you know, already had somebody here who could pay their way or they could pay, pay their way themselves. Um, so also, you know, people involved in, in crafts, um, people who could run a grocery store, some kind of shop, um, things like that. Did you did you want to add anything, Chloe? Maybe just one more thing on women. I, you know, in some accounts we've uh, we've heard or or read, um, you know, certain kinds of products and certain kinds of customers actually were uh, suitable, especially suitable for women. Um, and for example, selling like women's underwear. You know, if mm -hmm. housewives, for example, who aren't able to go or don't want to go into town, and they live, you know, in the suburbs of Boston. I mean, peddlers covered pretty significant distances. I mean, they're they went across the entire country, but even in the within the Boston area, it was a way for people who didn't live close to the commercial center of the city to get stuff. And so, you know, women could take women's underwear and scarves and uh, lingerie, whatever, out into the to these housewi housewives who were um, at home and sell door to door. And women have a really big presence actually in this neighborhood in terms of the social mm -hmm. life and the commercial life mm -hmm. of the of the yeah. place. And just like a note on the garment district, um, mm -hmm. that was. You know, like the mills were kind of where people would um, work in these big rooms and in this case doing piecework. So sewing clothes that would, could be ready made. Some people also made shoes and that was more in the leather district, which is nearby. Um, but a lot of those large um, textile making buildings are still there. They're, um, you know, other things today like offices, restaurants in Chinatown. So some of them are still there. And um what else? I mean, you see definitely it's like majority people who are like Syrian, uh, Russian, Jewish, Irish, Italian. And then it becomes more and more um, Chinese until you uh, see more women immigrating in the mid 20th century from China with the changes in immigration laws. And it becomes like the vast majority Chinese. Mm. Um, and then the other thing... I wanted to say something about, yeah, there is um, actually child labor, which is, you know, not specific to that community in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so children, you know, working, yeah, maybe peddling, as well as um, working in the cranberry bogs outside of Boston to the west and in Rhode Island. And we've found uh, photographs taken by Lewis Hine, who was a... Uh, Photographing child labor as a way to, you know, document it so we could change labor laws. And so we see a lot of, you know, the, the photos say like these children, most of whom are Syrian and they're working, picking the cranberries. So, you know, a lot of those things are either suited to the local environment and the kinds of products that are naturally in Massachusetts or brought from Syria, such as the lace making. Mm -hmm. Richard just pointed out that that tree was once the site of the St. John of Damascus Church. Still exists, but not in this neighborhood today. We have some parishioners here. Do you remember the church? Oh, alright. I remember it too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, to kind of move from the, you know, the what they did for a living to sort of how they lived, I guess. Um, can we tell us a little bit about um, 
the, the cultural institutions, the social and religious sort of uh, institutions that made their way and established themselves in the community. Thinking about, um, we talked a little bit about churches, but if we could expand on that. And also, um, I remember on the tour there being a settlement house. If you could tell us a little bit about what that what yeah. is, <laughs> was, uh, and, um, and sort of how that sort of built, uh, helped build the community. Start. Do you want to talk about, I feel like you know a lot about the settlement house. Yeah. Okay, we can start with that. Well, I think it's important that the churches in the settlement house that I'm going to talk about um, were clustered together, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also the school, school which yeah. Lydia is, uh, can talk about, too. Um, you know, when, when, and, and when I say clustered together, I'm talking about this these two streets, Tyler and Hudson, that are run parallel to one another um, in, uh, in South Cove. And so at the turn of the century, you have the establishment of the first um, dedicated Syrian churches. Um, St. George's, uh, which is a Syrian Orthodox church, now today is in West Roxbury. Um, then you have uh, Our Lady of the Cedars, Lebanese Maronite Church, um, which is in JP, J- Jamaica Plain, JP, today. And then you had uh, a couple of additional Orthodox churches that broke away from St. George's. Um, you have St. John of Damascus and uh, later St. Mary's. Um, uh, so anyways, there are a number of different churches there, and they're all there together. So, you know, church is really significant, I think. Um, and then, of course, the social organizations that uh, cropped up kind of from the churches. So the Lebanese and Syri- Syrian Ladies Aid Association, for example, mm-hmm. which was attached to, to one of the churches. Um, each of the churches had both male and female and uh, organizations that were you know, focused particularly on, on – um, but well, actually both aiding – aiding communities um, in the old country and also um, aiding new immigrants here. Um, and those really coalesced around World War One too. So we can talk more about why that was such an important sort of catalyzing mm-hmm. moment um, for, for activism. But the um, Denison House, uh, which is a settlement house you alluded to, is a really important institution not only for the Syrian history of Boston, but also in U.S. history, urban history, or U.S. history more broadly. Um some people might be familiar with Hull House in Chicago. Denison House was the second, um, and uh, was a by Settlement House. We're talking as an organization. Settlement House is a, both a physical place um, and also a community, basically a charitable organization where middle class uh, women, primarily women, not only workers, would. Um, uh, basically aid uh, recently arrived uh, immigrants and in multiple different ways. So they would offer, for example, classes. Um, we've seen ESL classes, you know, um, English as a second language. Um, we've seen um, like craft classes. We've seen uh, public speaking, uh, even math classes, you know, whatever you might need to be successful. Um, uh, as well as uh, courses for new mothers. Uh, Amelia Earhart, actually, some may be familiar with the famous pilot, uh, worked at um, Denison House and ran the Syrian Mothers Club, for example, mm-hmm. while she was training to fly out of, uh, well, it's now Logan Airport, where she left on her transatlantic flight. So she was doing this simultaneously. Um, so so Denison House um, also offered opportunity, was also an organization that um, would provide help kind of connect people with employment opportunities with housing really important um, locate housing um, 
And as a philosophy, I think this is what's most important, is that philosophically um, they believed that in social mobility, right, that we were here to basically help recently arrived immigrants who may not have means kind of get to the middle class eventually. And so um, in that sense, it's very much a product also of the philosophies of the late 19th century, um, but continued to exist and actually was later merged with other community organizations in Boston and exists in kind of a transformed fashion um, today in, in Dorchester. So that's really significant as far as the, the organizations and, and um, over the course of the entire period we're talking about. Mm. Uh, I could talk about the school Please, also, yeah. which was um, right next to, well, across from the settlement house and adjacent to Our Lady of the Cedars uh, Church, which Our Lady of the Cedars, I want to say Maronite. Maronite Church. Maronite Church, yeah. Um, so it was founded about 1848, the Quincy Grammar School, um, and that was a really key uh institution in terms of the reformation of education in the U.S. So before that, you had, you know, either one-room schoolhouses where someone's teaching everybody at once or private tutors, things like that. Um, and this basically changes that. And you have um, what's called a double-headed classroom where you have uh, students divided into classes based on age and you know, different teachers teaching those students at the same time in different classrooms. So the same system we have today. So that was really big. And that was the first um, actual, actually the first school in the U.S. that did that. So very revolutionary. So you have these students going to school in this um, reformed school. And um, they were attending classes alongside Chinese, Jewish, Russian, Italian, Irish students. We uh, encountered an oral history where the woman was saying, you know, we could swear in 10 different languages <laughs> after, after having gone to the school. So, um, so yeah, not, not only Syrians, but we do have, you know, evidence of a lot of Syrians going there, including people we've interviewed or, or their family members have gone there. Um, and that actually closed and the school moved a few streets away and still exists now. It's still Quincy School. Um, and that's currently being used. Uh, the building is used as the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association of New England. Um, and it looks somewhat the same as it did before. Now it has a, a giant statue of Confucius in front of it. So it's changed a bit. Um, but it is a registered um, historic site. And it has a plaque on it. And there's lots of uh, U.S. Park Service info on the preservation of the building. So some of those things are preserved. I mean, the Denison House is now a it's not hospital, there I think. Yeah, that was taken over by the Tufts uh, yeah, Medical Tufts. Center and reconfigured yeah. and everything. But And then the church next door, I mean, that church moved in the 60s to JP, and now that's, I think, just closed. It, it became a, it was taken over by a Chinese Christian mission, so there's a plaque in Chinese on it. No info about it being Our Lady of the Cedars, and the, but the church the lives on, there. you know, in another neighborhood. So some of these things are still, still there. Some mention what they were, some don't. It's some of the buildings are gone, so it's very, um, very varied, you know, stages of of use or disuse. Here we are in another empty lot. Um, <laughs> lots of empty lots everywhere. <laughs> um, so uh, here we are on Tyler Street. 
Um, and I'm here because at 40 Tyler Street uh, were the offices of the uh, Boston's Arabic newspaper, um, beginning uh, it just after the turn of the century in 1914. Um, so a vibrant Arabic language press emerged in several U.S. cities at the turn of the 20th century. One of these new journals was Kitas Boston, the Boston Girl, um, which unfortunately is slightly cut off here, but I'm still going to pass around this uh, image. You can see what the front page would have looked like. So something I thought was really fascinating from the tour was the Arabic language newspapers, mm -hmm. um, which seemed to be very impressive and how uh, wide their circulation was across North America, I think, and also in uh, Central and mm -hmm. uh, South America. So can you talk a bit about those newspapers and how they were used uh, to connect um, Syrian Americans here and also connecting them to Syria and Lebanon? Sure. Yeah. Um so the um, the main newspaper that was established in Arabic in in Boston it's called Fatat Boston, um, founded right, established right at the beginning of World War One. Um, it, it it didn't have the longest of runs, I have to say. Mm -hmm. It was mostly the war years, and there's some indication that it continued a bit. Um, uh, just after, um, there was also uh, an Arabic newspaper published in in Lawrence Al Wafat. Um, which actually lasted a bit longer. It started a bit earlier and lasted a bit longer. Um, but um, but there were, of course, newspapers also circulating in Boston, Arabic newspapers that were published elsewhere. I mean, New York in particular, um, where there were quite a few, which some which listeners may be, <laughs> may be aware mm -hmm. of. Um, but in terms of Fatat Boston, so, I mean, that was established by um, a man named Wadia Shakir, who was a Christian uh, from... Uh, it's now Lebanon, um, and who came around the turn of the century uh, with his mother as a teenager. And he had, in fact, attended, from what I recall, a, uh, a mission school, um, but was and was multilingual and a, an avid reader and uh, came to Boston, apparently, according to his uh, descendants, um, because he heard it was the literary capital of America. And so he thought this is the place to do it. Anyways, and he ran, in addition to the newspaper, I mean, he ran a... Um, Publish a publishing house or printer, you might say. Um, he was he was an important figure in the neighborhood. He wanted to he used this newspaper as an opportunity for the neighborhood to or the 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 community to um, articulate its patriotism, uh, especially during World War One. World War One uh, was such an important moment for Arab and Syrian communities across the United States, um, and of course. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was on the other side of the war um, from the U.S. and um, and uh, I think there was an anxiety uh, somewhat that for Americans who didn't understand that Arabs were uh, 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 not necessarily on the side of the Turks, despite being Ottoman Turkish subjects, mm -hmm. um, that you know their patriotism could be called into question. And so it was a moment in which they could. Uh, that 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 people really seized to um, loudly articulate how how proud they were to be American and how much they wanted to be American and how much they were not Turkish. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, part of that uh, goes back to the fact that census records often enlisted Arabs as Turkish. You know, there there was a huge amount of support basically for the war effort. 
um, here, despite you know many mixed feelings about world, about participation in World War One across the country as a whole. And so we really see that in the newspaper. I think that's sort of one of the most um, one of the reasons that this paper is such a great uh, resource, such a great source for studying the community. Um, and it's it's been um, digitized uh, through the Hyderabad Center at NC State, and um, it includes not only editorials about uh, you know in support basically of um, of the of the war, but also a really important I think um, I mean, it conveys news of what's going on in Syria and Iraq and and Lebanon. Um, uh, during the war for, you know, members of the diaspora, which is not, you know, you imagine that most Americans who were non-Arab, like reading the news from the war, were focused on the European front. And there wasn't a whole lot of reporting being done about the details of, of the destruction um, uh, in in the Middle East. From a different angle, um, it's in, it's interesting to look at these newspapers because of the ads. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's been a major source for us in trying to reconstruct what was where in the neighborhood because mm-hmm. local businesses, of course, advertise in the paper. So we were able to um, know, you know, which which what was where, what was the address, what did they sell, and what did particular stores, you know, have, who owned them, um, et cetera. Thinking about how the important role newspapers played mm-hmm. in in the process of nationalism, right? right. I and mean, this is not unique to Arabs of the Middle East uh, or anything, right? But um, we do know, though, that the Arab Arabic press did play a very important mm-hmm. role. In the Lebanese Arabic press mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. played a very important role in Arab nationalism. So thinking about sort of, you know, the ads, it kind of tells you about who they yeah. were, what they were, you know, selling, trading, what have you. But also the contents there around the First World War. Do you yeah. feel like they were maybe part of a, you know, a growing international conversation about Arab identity? You know, or, or do they were they very much focused on perhaps just Arab Americanness? You know, if you could call it that. I mean, I think the ads we saw were mainly about buying war bonds, mm. and then also businesses in the area, such as one advertising gramophone and records groceries, things like that. The so war bonds thing, is, yeah, many of those big. were actually translated from English, right? Like mm-hmm. they were ads that were being published in lots of different languages and different papers around the U.S. Base, or similar, but you'll see like an image, you know, it'll be some dramatic, like somebody, woman wrapped in a flag or something, and there'll be a mm-hmm. caption in Arabic, but the, the artist is, you know, it's not an Arab name. But I think there's this mm-hmm. sense of, I mean, A, that they're connecting with diaspora in other places. So I think that speaks mm-hmm. somewhat to your point. You know, there the masthead indicates that this paper is available at least to, for subscribers. How many subscribers were there in Havana or, mm-hmm. you know, Buenos Aires? Like possibly not very many. It's hard <laughs> mm-hmm. to say, but that was aspirational at least. They mm-hmm. thought about themselves as being part of a conversation that was much broader than just, you know, Boston, New York or even like Boston, New York, Beirut or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not just about like our villages in Syria and Lebanon. It's also what's going on in Iraq, what's going on in, you know, Istanbul, Cairo. I wouldn't say that from the what I've found, there's a lot of what you would might explicitly say, like this is really Arab nationalist rhetoric. But I think as far as kind of conveying a um, 
Well, certainly p- positioning themselves in contradistinction to the Turks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a sense of like our our brethren, you know, out there. And we need to aid our people. Um, and the, our people are the people of Syria and Lebanon and also the broader Arab world. There are also people writing in English for an American audience, such as our yeah. friend uh, Frederick Shibley, mm, who went by the pen later. name uh, Ibn Snoopin. Which can also be read as Iben Snoopin, so it has a True. double meaning. We forgot, that's a very important yeah. newspaper, actually. Yeah. Not in Arabic, uh, but... <laughs> yeah, the uh, Midtown Journal, and we have access to a lot of uh, the issues through his son, who's graciously shared them with us, and that was covering all the scandal in Boston. It was very um, entertaining. From the 30s onward, yeah. Yeah, very entertaining paper. So I think you have, like, you know... <laughs> A lot of different angles and people writing with different interests and different languages. So, and that's like hyper local in a way, right? So on the one hand, you yeah. have Al Fatat or Fatat Boston. I mean, it's a couple. It's you know, twenty years later and and more. Um, but you have them looking to to really to articulate these connections with the wider Arab diaspora, Syrian diaspora, and then you have also you know they're very embedded in the community that they're in too, mm-hmm. which is what the Midtown. Journal points to is that I mean they're really part of Boston. The son of of Fred Shibley, who who published and wrote every article in the Midtown Journal, um, told us you know it's it's never really been used as a source before for um, Arab history of Boston. In fact, mm-hmm. it's mostly LGBT history because the neighborhood became I mean the South End became a kind of gay hub mm-hmm. even though his pseudonym was mm-hmm. explicitly an arabic joke mm-hmm. you yeah. know that wasn't where <laughs> what yeah. it's been used for before so i think that boston history could really benefit from seeing mm-hmm. these com- this community or these communities as being a part of its history in a much more explicit way and also you know we can look at this neighborhood's history within the wider history of um you know uh, the arab diaspora yeah and i just want to add it's, it's a fun point he was a vaudeville acrobat and before he was a journalist so yeah, we've come across just really fascinating people in this Profession. project different professions different people professions. had in the neighborhood. so yeah there were also vaudeville actor, uh, acrobats uh, in addition yeah. to textile workers so yeah before we start walking again talked about language now we just if we could switch a little bit to sort of a discussion on um, sort of art and music uh, produced by this community I mean um, during the 
uh, get a chance to talk about that a lot actually during the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share with us a little bit about sort of the, the, the culture around music that is brought from Syria and sort of you know, replicated here? And Yeah, um, so we, I mean, one person who is featured um, distinctly in our exhibition is uh, Tony Abdelahad or Anthony Abdelahad, who um, was a oud player who was very famous in this community, and he toured across the U.S. and Canada in the mid-20th century, and we actually have uh, one of his records on display. As well as his oud. Um, As well as his oud, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, he would play at Haflet and other kinds of, uh, like, distinctly Arab parties and events. Um, And he was born in Boston, and he actually never even went to the Middle East. He did play for the king of Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. Yeah. So dignitaries, he, visiting dignitaries. Vis- visiting dignitaries. Um, and he, we have a songbook, and it's like very interesting because you can tell he may not have been able to write in Arabic that well, but he was singing in Arabic. Beautifully. So you do see, yeah, yeah very beautifully. Um, so you do see, in some cases, you know, some people are fully fluent in the second generation, some aren't so much. So the songbook is written in, um, like, basically transliterated into Latin script and then uh, fr- and then has the Arabic script as well and no English. So people like knew the lyrics, but they might not be able to read the Arabic script. But yeah, so people playing ode or clarinet or um, violin, yeah. violin uh, different instruments. Um, and they, he would also play, we have a photograph of him playing with a Syrian men, church men's choir. St. John of Damascus. So yeah, yeah, for, you know, I mean, playing uh, songs that had already been established in the Middle East. Actually, even pre-World War One, 1909, I think, you know, there was a shop owned by an Armenian, uh, Michael Ajamian, in, right on Neyland Street that sold all the latest records from Middle East. And that's it's notable because that was really early. I mean, there were the first... The first commercial records in Arabic were being produced in Cairo, like just after the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. So they were making it to Boston really soon, really quickly, and um, and, and these were these were big, you know, um, uh, like Salama Hagazi, for example, from Egypt. Um, you know, they would people would know the names; they're advertised. You know, like you can get the latest record from so and so. So they, the, I mean, unsurprisingly, like food and food and music are really things that were preserved perhaps more than anything else from one generation to the next, even as the language, mm-hmm. as Lydia said, started to be lost. Also, um, Tony Abdullahad himself um, had a, uh, a recording studio um, and was producing and selling records as well uh, right there in, in Little Syria. He's the most famous, but there are these church choirs which performed, um, sometimes in costume, but also um, there, you know, the churches and community organizations would often host uh, other famous Arab uh, American uh, musicians. And so we often see uh, advertisements for, you know, some Mahrajan in, uh, you know, at the St. George's or mm-hmm. St. John's Church um, with somebody from New York or California or Chicago. Um, and they were they were big names. And, and Tony Abdullah had died in 1995. So this was, you know, until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he has a wonderful website his grandson made. Right. Anthony. You can listen. 
hopefully to yeah, some of the music. Yeah. But as far as like art and literature too, I mean, people know about Khalil Gibran. Khalil Gibran mm-hmm. so he lived in Boston, has a plaque in front of the public library, mm-hmm. and he was also you know connected with the neighborhood. He didn't live his whole life there, but but he took art classes at the Denison House, which I spoke mm-hmm. about earlier, uh, and that was by some accounts at least his entree into the arts scene in Boston, a bohemian mm-hmm. uh, spiritualist uh, scene in Boston. So how were Syrian Americans viewed by the broader society here in Boston? Uh, I would say, you know, foreign yet assimilable. That's what we found in terms of like studies done by, we looked at a study done by a sociologist in the 1920s saying, you know, they're good at trading. They were known for being traders, you know, obviously plus that they're Christian, but there's still this tinge of, you know, Kind of suspicious oriental, something like that. He's generally saying, you know, they're very patriotic, proud of their Syrian past. Um, Yeah, so it's some things end up, he's trying to compliment them, but it's a bit of a, you know, insult too. Mm. So um, it's, yeah, orientalist cliches, but, you know, they're ultimately people who can become upstanding American citizens and that... um, intersecting with World War One and people, you know, buying war bonds or enlisting in the military, um, mm-hmm. becoming veterans or, you know, uh, being killed in action that really contributes to this idea that they can be Americans, especially through this, the sacrifice in the war. To come back to the kind of racial pseudoscience, class victory mm-hmm. schemes, you know, there was a sort of fixation and fascination with classifying people's mm-hmm. like character you yeah. know whole whole countries char- character traits um and in those and those you know in, in in those ratings like Lydia was say- saying i mean they actually the Syrians tended to fare pretty well as far as like how the US government ranked like different ethnic mm-hmm. groups but the, but of course what that means is they were always being positioned against some other group that was like less mm-hmm. assimilable and, you know we always have to say that well we're not somebody else mm-hmm. and unfortunately that uh, and you know the federal government was very susceptible to that kind of rhetoric or was advancing that kind of rhetoric like well okay you know you know, we have, say, 10 major ethnic groups living in downtown Boston, you know, who are the groups that we Mm -hmm. sort of can work with? And who are the groups who are just sort of beyond repair? Like these are, they're doomed to poverty forever, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. we've seen that kind of language. And so while we see often fairly kind of say things like language, like, you know, very few Syrians have committed crimes, therefore they're very trustworthy, you know, this kind of broad generalizations, Oh, and also, do they speak English well? And in mm-hmm. general, the level of of English speaking was hot, was pretty high, and not necessarily among those who had just arrived, but mm-hmm. you know, by like the 1910s and 20s, Syrian centers, partly because of the work they were doing as peddlers, you know, or mm-hmm. you learn English fast when you're interacting with yeah. lots of different people. So it's, I think it's it's hard to just say, you know, they were seen positively or they were seen negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the some of the families we've talked to had memories of. Um, in school, for example, you know, their food being seen as kind of different and weird um, or the language. And so I think it's always a bit complicated. And I think there was definitely, as I said, especially around the war, kind of concern or anxiety about um, being seen as like a, you know, fifth column or something. Mm -hmm. We were called everything from dirty Arabs, you know, um, 
it, if we brought any of our ethnic foods as lunch to school, we were humiliated. Syrian bread, it's like, what is that? No, the it, healthiest food around. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, but it was it was a difficult. We were in West Roxbury was entirely Irish Catholic, so we were definitely odd man out. You know, just just to get a little further into that last last bit um, of sort of integration, and you talked about some of the um, thousands of little squares we have on each street corner here in Boston. Um, you know, many of them were things like police officers, and you know, and, and the veterans in the in the mil- U.S. military. So, do you have anything more to say about that in terms of sort of integration into American? American life was that was that the path? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, if you wanted to become be viewed by Boston society as someone who is no longer a Syrian but now an American, do you go to university? You know, do you try to get into Harvard? <laughs> do you, There's a couple. <laughs> do you couple. do you become a cop? Do you become a you know what? What's the path for for the Syrian immigrant? Uh, I mean, in terms of. I will focus a bit more on the second generation here who have told us that, you know, our parents wanted us to finish high school and go to college. A lot of women I've talked to became teachers. I think that's, you know, a popular, at least, I mean, still, but especially earlier in American history, very popular uh, profession for women. So, um, yeah, becoming fluent in English and um, having a career where you could, you know, make money and become successful was or just you know not have to rely on your family become independent that's you know also more of an american uh value um that was something that was um held high so i think um yeah just getting an education was was important and they eventually become you know professionals and we see uh move to the suburbs as people um enter jobs such as doctors or teachers or lawyers, um, coupled with the development of the uh, Mass Pike at the Central Artery downtown. So that was like partly people wanting to move to the suburbs, which, you know, what's more American than moving to the suburbs, right? (laughs) Once you're integrated. Um, Partly that and partly being forced out by that project. I think just to step back and to come back to World War I, we do see hundreds of Syrian men in Massachusetts mm-hmm. serving in World War One and World War Two as well, um, and yeah. so, you know that not all, but some, as you pointed out, some of these squares are um, policemen and so forth. But many, many um, commemorate uh, Syrians who were killed or served, mm-hmm. usually killed in um, in in World War One. Primarily because there was a big push to erect those squares uh, in the immediate post-war years. Mm-hmm. Um, so several of the places, a couple of the those that we point out on the tour specifically fall into that category. Um, and many died and uh, and the city did commemorate them. Yeah, to me, I mean, it, it sends me the message that you have to pay the ultimate sacrifice to be considered American, which is a little pessimistic to me. But... Um, yeah, so I think there were different ways you could contribute, but that was, uh, you know, seen as very, you know, loyal to this country if you were willing to mm-hmm. to sacrifice your life. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I just have one follow-up question about race, um, which we talked about earlier. Um, was there a point, I know, I know that there was the George Dow case mm-hmm. that was in like the early 15th. 20th yeah. century. When was it? 1915. 1915. Okay. Um, so was there a time before that that Syrians might have identified with another racial category? I just, uh, you know, looking at the draft card that you had in the yeah. article, it has like white, Negro, Oriental, Indian. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that's exactly kind of the problem with the th- these shifting but yet still really pseudoscientific categories that the government was working with. And it's true that, like, in the late 19th century, this was the first time that people were more and more, I mean, more and more people were starting to come from farther and mm-hmm. from a more a wider range of places. And, uh, and like, you see this in the U.S. You know, archives, the National Archives, where clearly there were just a lot of people who didn't fit the categories that, yeah. um, the, the familiar categories. And so... There were there was constant litigation over you know is this person white or not white and I think important to know is that you know um, it was again we're talking about this early period here at the turn of the 20th century you know you either had to classify as white or of African ancestry in other words like black to uh, be eligible for naturalization or citizenship but you know it wasn't clearly defined in law what that meant. You know, and you find people contesting whiteness from all kinds of different places and backgrounds. You know, you have, for example, people from upper castes in India saying, well, I'm a Brahmin and so I'm white, but the other castes are non-white. They're Oriental or something. And that's you see that you see, you know, Syrians saying I'm white. Um, my, my civilization goes back thousands of years and, yeah. you know, we're the birthplace of civilization and, um, you know, and we're Christians. And so how can you say that if you are a Christian and you are considered white, how am I not white? Like, what about my what about me is different from you? Mm-hmm. You know, different courts, even in different parts of the country, often reach different conclusions about somebody's eligibility for naturalization. There's a set of cases right around that same moment. Um, in the 1910s, where Syrians' uh, eligibility for naturalization was was contested in court, and ultimately it was determined that they were. But previous to that, like some won naturalization, others didn't. It sort of depended on where you lived and the judge who was, um, you know, presiding over your case. So hopefully that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very interesting. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to end by talking about what happened to little Syria where the community kind of ended up, and what traces of it are left today in Chinatown and in the South End. Um, I could take that one. Uh, Since our exhibition covers a lot of the aspect of informality uh, and just, you know, the transition from a, you know, neighborhood being there to to changing to something else totally. So... um, by the 1950s, you have, as I said earlier, uh, people moving to the suburbs once they make more money, kind of get into a more professional class, churches moving there as well in the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and beyond, um, following the communities. Um, and, and, you know, you can just have a bigger church further out. The ones um, in, in what's now Chinatown are pretty small and, and now they're bigger. Um, for example, in, you know, JP or... Uh, West Roxbury Um, and that in combination with the um, Central Artery Project uh, which you know raised some buildings and forced people out um, pushed people out and I will also say there was 
a significant number of Syrians and Lebanese, also Greeks, Albanians, Armenians in the West End. And they had, you know, similar experience with that neighborhood being essentially raised for what's now, um, you know, government center and an MGH. So, you know, people don't have a lot of, um, what do I call it? They don't have a lot of choice in, in, in these really top-down decisions. Um, so they unfortunately have to leave. Um, and, and a lot of people had, you know, there was the body called the Boston Redevelopment Authority um, who was in charge of that and trying to, you know, help people deal with this transition. And, and there was just like a, a big lack of trust um, that people had uh, in the BRA. And those archives are at Boston City uh, Archives, and we've looked at those. So so that's pretty, uh, you know, there's a lot of information there if you want to look at that. Um, so a lot of people have moved out. There's a few people still living there, but they're always, you know, uh, they're quite old or have moved to, you know, Winthrop, West Roxbury, uh, Norwood, Dedham, places like that further out. So there are, you know, a lot of Syrian and Lebanese Americans still here. It's just very spread out and they, um, come together at places like churches still today. And um, some of those churches now, you know, with the more recent waves of people coming due to the Lebanese Civil War in 1975 to 1990, and then the Syrian Civil War from 2011 till today, they've joined those um, congregations. So they're mm -hmm. still, you know, connect, very much connected to, to what was greater Syria. There's a few businesses, sites that are still there, such as the Syrian import store and that, you know, we talked to them in early 2020, but every time we go by, it's closed. So I don't know what the, I mean, they own it, the family owns it, but we don't know what's, you know, hard going to on shop. with the business. It's hard to yeah. go in and shop today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the front window looks great. They have a, it looks like they have a lot of a lot nice stuff. Um, and they own this, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet in the interview, but the um, Syrian Sahara restaurant. Uh, a few doors down from that, and those are on Shaban Avenue. Um, we're going to move a little bit further down to our final destination, the Sahara Syrian restaurant. I think after the famous Sahara of Syria. Yeah. <laughs> it was only actually open between 1965 and 1970, unfortunately. Um, but we do have an ad that talks about the delicious foods that they were um, serving. It mentions dishes like shish kebab, lamb delicacies, Tempting pastry, hummus, grape leaves, kibe, as well as steak and chops, fit for a sultan. And that was open for a few years in the 70s and then has been, you know, shuttered since. And it looks like it's being used for storage. And they have this very iconic, you know, like retro hip looking sign that a lot of people are curious about. And um, so no one really knows what's no one really knows what's going on with that uh, business. But there's other locations too, like Peter's Park, and that was named after a family who were Syrian, and they um, their last name was Petros. And, you know, that's another aspect of Anglophone. Boutros, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Their, their last name was Boutros, and they... Um, that's another, uh, yeah, another example of the Anglophone assimil assimilation where, you know, you just, Peters. names no became. No one, you see Sadie Peters and it's like, Sadia Boutros, you know, it's yeah. like, you don't know. So people don't, I mean, they have, there's a plaque dedicated to her, this large stone, and, but it's not apparent that, it, that she was Syrian. So some things are very, like, obvious, but not, 
really until you look at it and read the scent. Hiding Mm -hmm. in plain sight is a great way to put it. Like there's some plaques to Ernest Deeb, who um, was not, uh, it's not a killed in action one, but it's just dedicated to him since he was an important member of the community. There's one that's for Thomas Karam, uh, one for John Lufty, and that was Lutfi. But it's changed so people can understand. So you have to really they're like be, <laughs> they're there, but they're you have hiding. to be like familiar with the Arab names to know. Um, and you know, uh, Khalil Gibran became Khalil Gibran. So there's all this. And who is like, the, there was the restaurant owner too. He had a very interesting name transition. The restaurant. Uh, who owned the, he owned the cafe that was by the old Shibley place. Uh, who was it? Lebanese or Syrian restaurant in Boston. Oh, yeah. I can't remember his it? name. Who was it? Nicholas. Uh, Mac, so John Nichols. Hannah, oh, Hannah. there's Hannah, Hannah Nicola. That, yeah. Hannah Nicola, Hannah Nicola became John, John Nichols. Nichols. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> some of them changed a lot. I mean, in that case, you know, he in Arabic, he advertised his name as uh, Hannah Nicola. But in English, he advertised it as John Nichols. Like, you know, bilingual ads. So mm-hmm. in some cases, you know, people may have been using yeah. uh, their uh, the original pronunciation, you know, within the community. But, you know, if they're doing they're doing business with the broader um commercial about broader business community they're like all right no one can say nicola nichols we got it (laughs) yeah and i think like just to briefly like relate to that you have the sahara syrian restaurant which you know the sahara desert is not in syria (laughs) and they're using like the imagery of the sphinx and and the pyramids to advertise and they're advertising you know we have both steak as well as chops and 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 falafel falafel so they really are marketing and you know they're kind of showing like hey we're syrian and american and we also saw that on um anton abdullahad's records he uses the sphinx and um, pyramid imagery so it's like kind of you know using orientalist imagery to promote themselves so yeah it's very there's a lot of layers capitalizing on i dream of genie or something like that if americans have heard anything about middle east like they probably have heard of the pyramids so let's just go with that yeah yeah yeah, but no it's i mean i think just to say one final thing about the transition just to come back to that question i think and the br i mean so sadie peters for example i'm she was quite active in organizing to at least advocate for the community in the face of these projects, which many of which never even came to fruition. The BRA acquired a huge amount of land, initially brought a lot of local um, community members on board, you know, to as to consult and so forth. And then but the project, the plans kept changing and, the you know, the projects transformed. And so there was an sort of, I think, a long term sense of insecurity about people's you know housing like will my house be the next one raised mm-hmm. or if it's raised what will be built here and in the end only some of the projects were actually implemented but by that point so many people had moved to the suburbs and you know as a combina- as a result of both Lydia said generational change you know um social socioeconomic mobility and um this sense that the community that the neighborhood was being raised and gutted mm-hmm. thank you um so this is a public history project and very different than the kind of research and writing you do in a PhD. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, how has this project sort of informed your other research, you know, in terms of how you think about communities, diasporas, how, you know, anyway, any way that it, it sort of affects your, your yeah. thinking? Um, I Yeah, actually, a lot of ways. I mean, for me, I noticed my family came from 
um, like around the same period as the Syrians were coming here from Bavaria and from Ireland. And I just noticed so many similarities in our, in our histories, like why we came, what our experience was when we got here. And, um, and those are also two groups where like, they were seen as like sort of white, but like, you know, the lower, like the lower whites. So, you know, you see that within whiteness, there's so much, um, like variation and in in fighting about that concept and they were catholic so they were like not not a, like not the good kind of whites you know in, in yankee america um so yeah i think i just yeah it made me like draw a lot of connections to other immigrant groups and see that you know they're see like notice the patterns and then the pattern to once you're in the city like getting to the next socio-economic level so you can move to the suburbs so yeah for me it like actually I felt like I had personal connections but also like as someone who works on Ottoman and Middle Eastern history not American history just like learning about our history as Americans and my own like personal connections to, to migration and family history yeah I think, okay, for me, yeah, it's a couple of different things. One has been, um, well, my current postdoc actually is also public history focused, and, and I'm working on a project um, through BU that is actually is focused on the history of um, Americans of uh, Middle Eastern descent. And so I've some of the research that I've done, the National Archives, for example, has kind of informed the way that I looked at this project and vice versa. Um, and I've been able to think more about Boston's specific history in the context of that project as well, which has been really great. Um, public historians are um, often think, I think, much more broadly about how, like how do we reach different kinds of audiences. And so, you know, we started with the walking tour, um, which is which I will say actually has has also been a method for me in terms of my um, academic research is that I like to spend a lot of time walking the streets mm-hmm. of the places that I'm writing about and looking at the specific loca- sites, whether or not they're still extant. Um, and especially, you know, when you're, say, in the field for six months or a year or a year and a half, and then you have to go back and continue to write about these places, it's so important, I think, that they're really imprinted in your brain. And you can write about, you can evoke place um, effectively um, and, and, and meaningfully when you're no longer there. And that I, I think I understand this, this history of Little Syria so much better from having walked it so many times mm-hmm. yeah. and to understand the relationships of people to place, um, especially walking the most, I mean, when we um, walked with you all with some of the members of this community and their descendants and have them be able to comment on specific places we passed and have those places then evoke new memories. I think that is was really powerful for me. But uh, and then, you know, it's again, to come back to this idea of different mediums and different methodologies uh, from the walking tour, we then transitioned to writing an article, and that article appeared in both English and in Arabic. And so we, through the Arabic article, which we published with the Jomhariya uh, magazine online, I mean, that reached, you know, Arab readers, con- contemporary readers of Arabic um, in the Syrian diaspora of today. And, you know, they have a whole other kind of perspective on this history. And so it reinforced for me what's also the importance of uh, a publishing your work in the language of the place that you are studying. It's just as important that we reach people in Boston who don't know yeah. this history and people maybe who might be interested in it who are Arabic speakers, you know, around the world. Yeah, I agree. Like same with me with the different mediums and I do curating as part of my career. So just like how do we turn a public history project into an exhibition and reach people which we're doing through this object 
yeah, through objects, material culture, which we're doing now at MIT, and then the exhibition will go to Massachusetts Historical Society in April, and we'll have a live event and reception um, accompanying that, and just, like, how to get Bostonians to be informed about the history that's not just, you know, a lot of people know about Chinese, like, Chinatown, Irish immigration, Italians, like, with the North End, and this is just, like, not really in Boston's historiography that much, so we want to enrich that. Um, and it has, like, made me think about my own research in a different way since I'm researching Ottoman schools and some of them are not there at all, so I have to find them in the archives. So it's that's kind of a parallel. So I'm thinking, you know, what are different ways I can understand these buildings that aren't there anymore? And also even comparing, like, Ottoman schools to things like the Quincy Grammar School where, like, in this school, they're learning all about how to be American. In those schools, they're learning all about how to be Ottoman. Although I will say in the Ottoman schools, learning, you know, four languages, whereas I think in the American schools, they're only <laughs> learning one. So there is, I, I did see like, hmm, are the Syrians like, do they really have a better education here? Or is it just that it's in English? Um, so yeah, I think that connects a bit to like this global history of education and um, and craft education that I'm, I'm doing as a separate project, but I have seen some, some different links. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely made us think about our, our very many different projects. <laughs> you know, we both work on the late 19th and early 20th century. And so um, I think always thinking about what's going on in a different part of the world yeah. at the same time and how mm -hmm. these worlds are connected. You know, I was doing research in the Ottoman archives in Istanbul and I came across, um, you know, lists of, uh, newspapers and books that were censored, you know, by Ottoman officials, um, by the Ottoman authorities. And they're things that are published all over the world. Um, but among other, among other places, they were things that were published in Boston were being read and censored, and, or let's say read and prohibited from entry into the empire um, by the censors in Istanbul. So, you know, you find these kind of peculiar connections. And another great one, I should say along those lines, is like, the um, detective agencies that were hired by the Ottoman uh, consul here um, in, in Boston to monitor and surveil Armenians in Watertown, mm -hmm. you know, local Boston detective agencies being hired to track people, but also just like collect and read whatever was being written um, mm -hmm. in, you know, by Armenians. So this is part of that is, in a, I guess, in a sense, it is part of this larger history Autumn of Autumn in Boston yeah. that we've been trying to contribute to. It's just that the, it's so rich that there are many, yeah. many pieces well, to yeah. get into. Kind of reinforces the idea that local history is global history and global mm -hmm. history is local history. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Going off of what you said before about like connection, like since we work on this period, I think something that's been a real joy for us is to actually talk to people who grew up in the neighborhood because since we research like I'm researching Ottoman architecture, you're researching earlier Egyptian history, everyone's dead. Like we can only talk to the documents and see what they try to say. And so it's like a real pleasure to talk to these families and they are so excited that, you know, yeah. this history is finally being looked at um, and, you know, having a light shine on it. Um, and just, you know, the churches are living, we can go, you know, talk to people, priests who work there. So it's just like, it's really nice to, you know, work on something that's a bit more contemporary and, you know, where you can see that people are really excited about it. So well, that's they, there's a sense of ownership of this history, too, yeah. and, and that where mm -hmm. our role is less to just research and put something out there, but also to and connect the dots between yeah. 
people, families who's, who's in many cases we find, I mean, they all, their parents or grandparents all knew each other well and, you know, had all these overlapping connections. Mm -hmm. But they, because they've spread out now into the different suburbs, if they go to different churches, for example, they're no longer connected with one another. And so mm -hmm. one of the most satisfying roles we can play is reconnecting the dots and being able to situate that and this neighborhood within this much broader context. To learn more about Boston's Little Syria, visit bostonlittlesyria.org, where you can find information about walking tours, exhibits, and media coverage. You can also find links to pictures from the tour and Tony Abdul Ahad's website, where you can listen to more of his music in the show notes for this episode. We hope you'll subscribe to the Harvard Islamica podcast for more interviews on research related to Islam and Muslim societies, past and present. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks as always for listening.